Well, I think it's a rule that if you show a clip from Forrest Gump, you have to do the part where life is like a box of chocolates. I mean, so I put that in there. That, that worked well. But it's actually the second saying of his mama that I want us to focus on today, that you can tell a lot about a person by their shoes, where they've been, where they're going, what they've been doing. You know, there are two great criticisms of the church. One is that we don't go. They say, you don't understand. You just kind of wall yourselves up there in your sanctuaries and your auditoriums and your worship centers and you use all of your high-tech equipment and said, and you're just kind of oblivious to what's going on in the world. You don't go out into the world. And I'm thankful for a church where I don't believe that is true. I believe we do go into the world. But we need to be careful. We need to hear a word of caution there because it's kind of easy to fall back into that. It's easy to gather in here and just feel safe. And you know, Scripture never says for the world to come to us. It says for us to go to the world. But the second criticism of the church is that even when we do go into the world, what does it matter? They say, what you've got, your message, it's fine for you there. It does something for you, I guess. But it really doesn't do anything for us. It's not relative to the culture and to the world in which we live. I want us to think about that today as we think something about the signs of life. And I want us to, to look at the word relevant. And look at what the dictionary tells us about that word. The word relevant very simply means to have a bearing upon or to have a connection with the matter at hand. And so if we're saying that the church is not relevant, we're really missing what God has called us to do and tasked us to do because He has said to us that we are to go into the world and to be change agents. And so we need to ask ourselves, how do we become relevant to the world? How do we make an impact or a connection with the matter at hand? And Jesus gives us an answer to that in Matthew chapter 5. So if you get your Bibles and go ahead and turn there, we're going to begin reading at verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some at various locations in the chairs there up underneath. If you don't see one right in front of you, if you'll kind of look to the left or the right, you'll probably locate one and ask somebody to give it to you. But as Jesus addresses the crowd, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. And before we really get into this passage and get into this whole thing of salt and light, I want to take a moment and just get you to notice something there. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the Word, and I believe the Word always used words perfectly. You know, many times for us, we will say, well, I misspoke, or I, I didn't mean to say that, or I wish I hadn't said that. Do you realize nowhere in Scripture does Jesus ever say that? 
He always said exactly what he meant, and he said it the way that he meant. And because of that, I think it's very important to notice in this passage of Scripture that he chooses to use a literary form called a metaphor rather than a simile. So now you're going to get an English lesson in the midst of your sermon this morning. For those of you that don't remember, and some of you who never knew, a simile is a way of comparing two things, and oftentimes it'll have the word like in it. Jesus used that often. He would say the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would go on and compare it to something. We use it all the time in everyday language, where many of us use it like the little boy in a comic strip, Zitz. You've never seen that comic strip. It's a story about a family with a teenage boy in the house. And if you've ever had a teenage boy in the house, more times than not, this comic strip will ring true. But this particular day, uh, the teenage boy and his girlfriend are kissing. They're, they're making out. And he pauses in the moment, in the midst of it, and he says, I love your lips. And then trying to be very romantic and, and use similes, he goes, they're like two plump, juicy caterpillars. <laughs> Realizing it wasn't such a good simile, he tries to correct it. He says, but without all the legs and hair. <laughs> but being a teenage boy who can't filter what he's thinking, he's looking at her lip and he says, well, most of the hair anyway. <laughs> at which point she tells him, you should just kiss more and talk less. <laughs> Husbands, that might be good advice for many of us. But Jesus didn't use a simile. He used a metaphor. Metaphor doesn't have that like word in it. A metaphor says it is. A metaphor says that the two words are basically the same. In a metaphor, you're saying that you're transferring the aspects of one to the other. And so Jesus doesn't say in this passage that you and I are like salt and we're like light. In fact, he doesn't even say in this passage that we need to strive to be salt or we need to strive to be light. He says that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, he says you are salt and you are light. The only question is, what kind are you? And so as we go through this today, we're going to look at that. We're going to see what we're supposed to be and we're going to try to understand why sometimes we're not. So he says there in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And so now his crowd in that day that are standing there listening to him, many of them are fishermen. And right away, I believe that their mind would go to this aspect, this characteristic of salt, that salt prevents, it prevents decay. You remember, this is way before refrigeration had come into being. And so their only way of preserving their fish, their only way of preserving their meats was to pack it and rub it down in salt or dip it in a saline solution. And so right away they would understand what Jesus is saying here. When he says there's salt, they would go to this idea of being a preventive type of agent. I remember as a kid growing up on the farm when the first real good cold snap or good string of cold weather would come, it was time to kill hogs. And to some of you that sounds awfully gross, and, and it was actually, but it was time to do it. That's what you did on the farm. And one of the things in that process that we did back when I was a kid is we had salt-cured hams. And so you would get the ham, and you would take it into the smokehouse there, and you would pack it down in salt. And what you had to do is rub that salt into the meat. 
You can imagine what a great job that is for a kid. I mean, rubbing salt in, in this ham. But you had to rub it in. You had to make sure you got it into all the little places. Everything had to be covered. Everything had to be salted down. Anywhere that the salt didn't touch would rot. And so you put it there and you put it down in the salt boxes and it would stay there for a certain number of days and weeks. And then you'd take it out and you'd hang it up in a bag. And then it would sit there for a year before you ever touched it. But it was good because you had cured it with salt. Salt prevented the rot. Well, Jesus calls us to be that kind of agent in the world around us. Because you see, our world hasn't done what we thought it was going to do. There were people who predicted, lots of people, learned people, who predicted that our world would continue to improve and improve and improve and move toward a state of utopia. I mean, we would get to the place where there'd be no more sickness, there'd be no more crime, there'd be no more wars. Well, how's that worked out? Not so good. Because you see, our world, just like meat, is going to rot left to itself. And Jesus calls you and me, his followers, his believers, to go out into the world and to help to retard that decay, to help stop that rot, to help make a difference. And so Jesus says, you are the salt. But not only does salt prevent, but salt provides. What's one of the most common phrases uttered at the dinner table every night? Please pass the salt. We know that salt seems to help food, doesn't it? It makes it taste better. It adds something to it. Jesus, when he comes into our lives, adds flavor and savor to our lives. And our responsibility as His children is to go out and tell others that they can taste that as well. You know, you watch the cooking shows, and they'll tell you not only does salt in and of itself add flavor, but they'll say it enhances the flavor of other food. But you know, it's an interesting study that's been done, and I want to just share it with you. Two scientists, Breslin and Beauchamp, said salts are used as flavoring agents in the cuisines of many cultures. They impart their own salty taste, and people say enhance other flavors. The apparent ability to increase the intensity of other desirable flavors is puzzling because all published psychophysical studies show that salt either suppresses or has no effect. In other words, it says salt can't enhance. It can only suppress or be neutral. And so as a result of this study, they have come to this conclusion. He says, we believe that salts selectively suppress the unpleasant tastes, such as bitterness, and have no effect on the pleasant ones, such as sweetness. And that's why it improves your food. And you know, I don't know if their study's right about table salt, but I do know this. I believe it's right about us as the salt of the earth. Because what God has called us to do is to go into the world and to suppress the world so that Jesus can be lifted up. In other words, what these scientists are saying salt does is it takes your focus off of the unpleasant and causes you to focus on the pleasant. And that's what we're called to do. We're to provide that to the world around us. 
The third thing that salt does is it promotes thirst. And Ronnie kind of hit on this in his overview last week. We won't spend a lot of time because most of us understand that, don't you? You eat a lot of salt, what happens? You get thirsty. But you know what? That salt increases your desire, increases your thirst, but it doesn't increase it for more salt, does it? No, you want something else. You want something that satisfies. The salt in and of itself doesn't satisfy. And so you want, you know, a nice drink of cool water. You want some lemonade. You want something that will satisfy your thirst. And so we provide to the world opportunity to understand that they need something else. They need something that is going to satisfy them, and that something is Jesus Christ. And so we point them to Jesus. Fourth thing that salt does is it permeates. You think about recipes, and I was looking through a bunch of them this week, just kind of thinking about it. They'll say something like this. Start with a cup of flour, cup of milk, cup of this, tablespoon of that, and a pinch of salt. Or they'll say, you know, a pound of this, a dozen of these, and a half a teaspoon of salt. Why is that? Because it doesn't take much salt to bring change. Now hear that, church. Because what's one of our excuses? What can I do? I'm only one. What can we do? There's not many of us. We're outnumbered. We're like grains of sand out there. No, you aren't. You're like grains of salt. And a little bit of salt can bring a big change. And that's what God has called us to do. But not only does He tell us that we are salt in this passage, He also says we are light. And I want to share with you some characteristics of light then that transfer over to us as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. And the first of this is that light destroys. Now, we don't think of that very often, do we? But light destroys darkness. John 1.5 says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Literally what it says is the darkness could not overcome it. Now, I started to do this this morning, but I knew it would freak both the cameras themselves and the camera people out. But I was going to get Mike to see if we could just douse every light in this room at one time. You know, all the overhead lights, the, the theatrical lights, the cross, everything. Just bring it in. If you've ever been in this room when everything is out, it's not true total darkness. Boy, it's pretty close. It is dark in this room. And that darkness just freaks cameras out. So I didn't do it. But just suppose for a moment that we had. And we're sitting in here in, in basically total darkness. And I cut on a little pin light flashlight up here. <coughs> Guess what? We're not in total darkness anymore. Light always destroys darkness. And it never can work the other way around. Darkness cannot destroy light. The darkness can try as hard as it wants to be darker, but as long as the light's there, it's there. And we're called to be a light into the world. We do live in a world that's dark. 
but it can't win. Total darkness in the room. One little pin light, darkness loses. Darkness in the world. One Christian taking a stand from God, darkness loses. But not only does darkness destroy, it also detects. Listen to this from John 3, verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. What's one of the major deterrents to crime? Good lighting. In fact, with this building, as we're getting ready to plan the expansion, you know, and it happened when we were getting ready to build the original building, you know, the police department makes some recommendations, you know, things that they do for your home as well, you know, keep the shrubs cut down, do all of this. One of the things they say is make sure you got good lights because evil doesn't like the light. And so when we go out into the world and shine, we expose evil for what it is. But the opposite is also true. Not only does it detect evil, but it also discovers good. Look at the next verse, verse 21 in John chapter 3. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. You ever notice when your kids or your grandkids make something or do something that they're really proud of, that they think is really, really good? What do they do with it? They bring it to you for you to see. Same is true in our world. As we go out in the light of Jesus, as we go out seeking to make a difference, seeking to have an impact, seeking to be relevant to the world around us, we discover that which is good. And then light also defines us as Christians. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. How do we live a relevant life? How do we handle this journey across this planet Earth? It says we walk as children of light. We walk as Children of God. And as we do, we make a difference. We make an impact on the world around us. We're looking at the signs of life this summer. And the first sign of life in a Christian is dusty shoes. A relevant life. In other words, we've gone, and not only have we gone, but we've done something as we go. As we go, we make a difference. For Jesus. In the verses we read a moment ago, Jesus gives to us the doctrine, the truth. You are salt. You are light. And then in verse 16, he gives us the duty that goes along with it. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. In heaven. What do we have to do? We must go into the world. And we must rub ourselves into the culture and the community in which God has placed us. And we must shine like a city on a hill. 
And I want you to notice something. I use the word must. And I believe that's what the scripture teaches us. We must do that. Because if we don't take Jesus seriously on this, of being salt and light into the world, then we've relegated ourselves to insignificance in our culture. In fact, Jesus says it pretty clearly, pretty distinctly. He says, if you don't take this seriously, you're good for nothing. Now, we don't like to hear that. But he says, if you're not being salt, and if you're not being light, you have no relevance, no significance. You're fulfilling no purpose. You are not like salt. You are not like light. You are salt. Are you salt with all of its savor and flavor and saltiness? Or are you only useful to be thrown away? You are light. Are you a light that's set on a candlestick that gets into every nook and cranny and every corner? Or are you hidden under the bushel? Sue and I, for many years here, worked back in the nursery, in the preschool. We had some that we started with when they were little babies and moved up with them. We graduated with them and went up until they were three years old. We used to sing songs with them. And their favorite song was, This Little Light of Mine. And their favorite part was, Hide it under a bushel. And then their response, as loud as those kids could scream, was, No! They waited for that. What about you? Hide it under a bushel? Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for the call on our lives to be change agents, to be people of significance and relevance, to make a difference. And Father, as we bow our heads now and we reflect on what you've just said to us, Father, are we being the kind of salt we should be? Not just collectively as a church, but Lord, am I individually, personally, being productive salt and shining light? Father, what would you have me to do today? in response to your word. Show me now. In Jesus' name, amen.